Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. One of the most uh, well-known poems in English is by Robert Frost. It's called The Road Not Taken. It's just four stanzas. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference." Uh, This is called The Road Not Taken. I actually think that it would be more appropriately called The Road Taken because the the final stanza says, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I took the one less traveled by. I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I know that most of you are not accustomed to uh, reading and understanding poetry. So the story here is he's traveling in the woods. He sees that there is a a fork in the path. He doesn't know which one to take. He ends up taking the one that looks like uh, it has been uh, walked upon the least. And he says, I'll come back and take that other way sometime. But he never does. And uh, that choice, seemingly haphazard on the spur of the moment, made an enormous difference in the way that his life turned out. When I was in the sixth grade, I uh, was on a football team, and I think it was near the end of the season that a man came walking out to the field where we were finished with practice, and our coach uh, gathered us up so that we could hear the man, and he said, we are thinking about starting a basketball team here at Rock Hill High School. Would any of you boys be interested in playing basketball? And I spoke up and said, oh, I would. And there were a number of us who said we would, and we ended up having a basketball season. uh, Having That was the first year I'd played basketball. I'd I'd almost not played basketball at all before that. At that time, football was uh, the sport that I was most interested in, but it wasn't long until I became a much better basketball player than I would have been at football. And so I stopped playing football altogether and continued to play basketball for several years. As a result of playing basketball, I became acquainted with a youth pastor in Lexington, Kentucky, when I was a youth pastor there, Tony Rose. This is uh, Gary Belk's nephew, and uh, so, or cousin, I guess. And uh, anyway, Tony Rose and I became friends because of basketball. We were playing basketball together. And I mentioned to Tony that I was interested in going to seminary, and so he had graduated from Mid-America Seminary in Memphis, Tennessee, And so he said, I I think you'd like this seminary. Let me take you down there and introduce you to the seminary. He did, and I went. 
And it was while I was there that I met Carol, whom I married a couple of years later. And uh, after I had married Carol, I felt, uh, felt like it was a, a good idea for me to do something to support her. And uh, so <clears throat> uh, I was pastoring a very small church in the hills of West Virginia. And at her encouragement and urging, she said, you know, you're really good at working with college students. You should get a Ph.D. so you can teach college. So I did. I almost certainly would not have gotten a Ph.D. if it had not been for her urging and encouragement. But I did. I got the Ph.D. And as a result of the Ph.D., I got hired to uh, teach at uh, Southern Seminary at Boyce College. And uh, while there, was contacted by Jim Bob Outland and uh, Dean, and they said, we need an interim pastor at Bullet Lick Baptist Church. And so about five years ago, that conversation was going on. But the short of it is, I'm standing in front of you today preaching to you because of a decision that I made on that football field when I was 12 years old. I mean, just step by step, it has led up to this very moment where I'm standing in the pulpit of Bullet Lick Baptist Church. I left out some of the steps. At the time, I didn't know that I was making a significant life-altering decision. And on the ride down here, I asked Carol and Naomi, who were in the car with me, can you think of any decisions that you made in your life, which at the time, you had no idea that it was going to alter the course of your life, but with the passage of time, you have in fact seen that that decision did. You might give some thought to that later on. I'm afraid that it would be a distraction to you right now. You may be able to think of something right offhand. But maybe you can think of some just small decision that you decided and that you took the road less taken and that has made all of the difference. Uh, I think that there are examples of that kind of decision-making that are intimated in the text that we are going to be thinking about together this morning. Let me read this text to you from Matthew chapter 4. Now when John had heard, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, most of you know that uh, I'm preaching a series of sermons on the life and teaching of Jesus. I think I'm about eight months into it and anticipate that it will probably take three or four years. And uh, so if you're keeping track of things, then you know that it was several months ago that we studied about the temptation of Jesus. And here in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus is described. And then the next thing that we have is he hears that John is put in prison And he goes to Galilee. Well, Matthew is not including everything that has happened in the life of Jesus. In fact, no writer of the Bible does. At the conclusion of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if if everything that Jesus said and did were written down, 
the whole world would not have room for the books that, were writ- that are written. And so the Holy Spirit in his wisdom has seen fit to guide the four writers of the Gospels to include those events which are significant. And sometimes we might look at an event like this and say, why is this a significant event? Uh, I, I wonder, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but many of you have been Christians for 40 or 50 or even 60 years. Did, were you aware that at one point Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum? Probably not. It's the sort of thing that you can read over year after year and say, well, what's, what's the big deal? I mean, who, who cares that he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum? We don't even know where Israel is on the map, much less the difference between Nazareth and Capernaum. So what's going on here? <clears throat> In fact, the Bible does give us three reasons here why Jesus moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. One of those reasons requires that we look back on something that happened during the time between the temptation and the time when Jesus moves to Galilee. Uh, but there are a number of events that happened in that, that period of time. So the, the, the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, that happened between the temptation and when he moves to Galilee, and so on. In fact, there's about a year of time during this this period of obscurity, that we don't exactly know very much about what Jesus said and did. However, just to emphasize something I've already said, the Holy Spirit did guide and did make sure that what is necessary for us to know has been included in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's really kind of nice that it's so manageable. As I've told you before, if you read only half an hour a day, you'll read through all four Gospels in 20 days. You can read all four Gospels in about 10 hours of normal-paced reading. And uh, what, what a blessing that is that this most important of all messages is so concise and so condensed that we can read four perspectives on the life and ministry of Jesus and we can do it in about 10 hours. So that's a great blessing, but you know, that's also... Uh, takes the wind out of your sails if you think that you're going to explain to God one day how you never had time to read about his son. And he, he can say to you, well, it would only take 10 hours. You spent more time than that every week on Facebook. You spent more time watching TikTok videos than it would have taken for you to read the entire Bible. <clears throat> I think it was John Piper who said, whatever else social media has taught us, it has taught us that, the, that it was not lack of time that kept us from reading the Bible and praying. It was not lack of time because suddenly we've got time for all of this. So <clears throat> Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist overlapped for a while, but then John the Baptist is thrown into prison. <clears throat> and we'll study this later on, God, God willing, if he spares us. We'll study later on how that John got thrown into prison by Herod the Tetrarch. A Tetrarch was someone, there were four of them originally, and that's why they're the word tetra, which means four. So he was ruling over one-fourth of the land of Palestine. And the area that, that Herod ruled over was Galilee. So when you read that when Jesus heard that John was put into prison, he goes to Galilee, you may have thought he's trying to get away from the bad guy. But in fact, he's going into the bad guy's territory. So Herod has put John into prison, 
and Jesus goes into Galilee. Now, both Nazareth and Capernaum are encapsulated in the region of Galilee. That area could be further subdivided by the allotment that was given to a couple of the tribes of Israel. I mean, all the 12 tribes of Israel had allotments throughout the land of Palestine. And this northern part of the country, by the Sea of Galilee, between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, was allotted to Zebulun and Naphtali. I mean, two, two of the tribes that are virtually unknown. I mean, it would be hard for us to say, uh, you know, d- does anybody know what tribe Gideon was from? Well, he's from the tribe of Manasseh. But nobody knows that. You know, uh, I, I know it because I just heard it this week. And, uh, but who, what is the significance of Zebulun and Naphtali? You probably don't know one thing about Zebulun and Naphtali. And that's okay. Uh, but it, it is a northern part of the country, and it's a part of the country that is close to enemy territory. And that's why when the Assyrians came from the north and attacked Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first of the tribes that were taken slaves into Assyrian captivity. And then the Assyrians worked their way down, went as far as they could. They weren't able to take the southern kingdom. But these northern regions of Israel, the region of Galilee, were overrun by the Assyrians. Many of the people were taken captive. Later on, some of them came back, but still there were a lot of foreigners who lived in that part of the country. And so, since most Jewish people were averse to interaction with foreigners, that was kind of a bad part of the country. And among that bad part of the country, there were even some towns that sort of had a bad reputation. Nazareth was one of those towns. So, all the southern Israel looked at northern Israel as probably the way that New York and New Jersey look at Kentucky and Tennessee. You know, those people are rednecks. Those people don't wear shoes. They're just running around carrying rifles and drinking moonshine. And, and that's, that's sort of the way that, uh, that Nazareth was regarded. I, I, I went to a country school. We were, we were far out in the country, and people kind of made fun of us for being farmers. In fact, they had a little cheer that they would sometimes say when they were defeating us. They would say, go back, go back, go back to the woods because your coach is a farmer and your team is no good. <clears throat> and uh, we're like, what's wrong with being a farmer? Okay, we grant that we're no good, but what's wrong with being a farmer? <laughs> But there was one school that was even farther in the country than we were. And when we played that school, once a year, we could use that cheer against someone else. <laughs> That's kind of the way it was in northern Israel. So uh, when, when John the Baptist first says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there are some guys from Capernaum who hear John say that. Peter his brother Andrew, James, and John, they were both from Capernaum. By the way, did you know that none of the 12 disciples, not one of them, was taken from the educated part of the country? They were all taken from, from the redneck part of the country. So anyway, these four brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they were from Capernaum. 
And uh, Philip also was from Capernaum. And, and so he goes to Nathanael and says, We have found the Messiah, the one Moses wrote about in the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? So even though he is from that part of the country, Nazareth is a really a, a town that people kind of look down on. That's where Jesus grew up. He, he grew up in the town of Nazareth. It's like when Jesus came and made himself of no reputation, he really made himself of no reputation. He lived in this little hick town and was virtually unknown and significantly underappreciated. So when, when he hears that John has, John's ministry has been in that region, when he hears that John has been put in prison, then Jesus goes to that region. You know, the Lord has a way of supplying servants where he needs servants to be. And I'm sure that there were some people who thought, oh, John the Baptist has been put in prison. What are we going to do? There was so much spiritual good that was going on. John the Baptist gets put in prison, and then the Lord brings his own son, Jesus, into Galilee. And when he gets there, then Jesus goes to his hometown. And we studied about this last week. So when he goes to his hometown, then at first everyone is Oh, amazing, just what a great speaker he is. Can you believe that? But isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, why is he preaching like this? Who does he think he is? Isn't this, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus preached them the sermon there in the synagogue at Nazareth that we studied last week, how that God in his sovereignty sends his servants to whomsoever he pleases. He made them especially angry when he said there were many people with leprosy in Israel during the times of Elijah the prophet. God did not send, God did not heal any of them, but only Naaman the Syrian, an outsider. There were many widows in Israel that needed help, but Elisha was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That's not too far from Galilee. And so in Nazareth, They were like we people who went to Rock Hill looking at those people even farther out in the country and saying, you all are really hicks. That's the way that the people of Nazareth looked on the people of Syria and the people who were in Tyre and in Sidon. Those are those unpleasant Gentiles. And you're saying that God is going to show mercy to them? And that made them so angry that they took Jesus to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so that they might throw him over. And then the next thing that we see in the history of Jesus is that he moves his his home from Nazareth to Capernaum. Probably by this time, Jesus was the head of the family. After uh, the, the incident with Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem at age 12, we don't read about Joseph anymore. And so many of us think that uh, Joseph probably died sometime before Jesus commenced his ministry. After that, we see Mary occasionally, but we don't see Joseph anymore. And so it's very likely that Jesus, as the oldest son in the family, had taken the responsibility for Mary and for her, for his younger brothers and sisters, because Jesus was Mary's firstborn But then she had numerous children after that. He had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. 
Four of the brothers are named. Two of the sisters, they're not named. In fact, we don't know even, there may have been four or five sisters because just the plural is used. This, isn't, this, isn't this the carpenter's son? Aren't his brothers so, 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 so here? And his sisters, aren't they with us? So this is, uh, so, so Jesus is the head of the family. He's taking care of the family. He moves them out of Capernaum to Nazareth. I can imagine that things had not only gotten unpleasant for Jesus in Nazareth, but also there were going to be repercussions for his family. So he moves the family and they go to Capernaum. And uh, so he, he moves, you, you can see, because the, the people in Nazareth had demonstrated that they were incapable of benefiting from his ministry. Now, what made them so, so hardened to the ministry of Jesus? And I think part of it is the tendency that each one of us has uh, to fail to appreciate the things with which we are familiar every day. So the old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. We've got to be careful that that doesn't happen to us with regard to spiritual things. We've got to be careful that that doesn't happen to us with regard to spiritual people. So I, I think that one of the saddest two words in the Bible is leaving Nazareth. I understand why Jesus left Nazareth. He did. He obviously did the right thing. But then I think Nazareth had rejected him, and now Jesus is rejecting Nazareth. In all that we have about the rest of the life of Jesus, we only read that he he went to Nazareth only one more time. And there again, it says he could not do many miracles among them because of their unbelief. And so Nazareth, which had lived in the same town with the Son of God for nearly 30 years gets no spiritual benefit from living in the same town with the Son of God. I wonder if there was anyone in Nazareth who missed Jesus when he was gone. I wonder if there was anyone who said, Oh, we failed to take hold of the greatest blessing that God could ever have sent to us. I hope that that there were, but by and large, it seems like the city of Nazareth in general had failed to appreciate who Jesus was and to benefit from his ministry. And that makes me think about us. Who is there in your life who is a spiritual benefit? Who is there in your life that uh, you will miss terribly when they are gone? But maybe you just don't think that much about them right now. As I was preparing for this section of the sermon I started thinking of people in this church and thinking about people who, you know, they mean so much. And what they do is behind the scenes. And if they, if they were to die or if God were to move them somewhere else, there would just be a gaping hole that would be left in our church. Is there someone that you feel that way about? May this be used by God to stir up your appreciation for that person and even move you to express your appreciation to that person. I think that's one lesson that we can get from Jesus leaving Nazareth is that we need to be sure that we appreciate the spiritual blessings that are here. And that leads me to the second lesson that I think we need to learn from leaving Nazareth. 
Don't make the mistake of thinking that all the spiritual people and all the spiritual blessings are somewhere else, somewhere far away. One of the things that I find most disconcerting about the obsession with cell phones is that it gives the impression that all the really important people are somewhere other than where I am right now. Uh, Through the years, as I was uh, teaching uh, classes, there would often be a break sometime in the class. If it was a three-hour class, we'd take about a 15-minute break. And uh, in the early days, before cell, cell phones were all over the place, there were a lot of friendships that were struck up, and people would take a 15-minute walk together. They would talk together. There were men who met their wives during those breaks, and there were, there were just friendships that were forged and enhanced during those breaks. But uh, during the final years that I was teaching, I saw that all that disappeared. Everybody was just looking at their cell phone. People would take their cell phones. They would go out in the hallway. Maybe they would go outside, but they weren't talking to other people, just always using their cell phones. Sometimes on the most splendid, bright, blue sky days of autumn, when when the whole campus was ablaze with the glorious colors, I would see people walking around campus with their face about eight inches from their cell phone. And uh, the point that I'm making of that right now is that There is a danger that you will think the really spiritual people are all somewhere else. The really important things that need to be said and that I need to listen to are all being said by someone else. And I'm saying that that's the kind of mentality that led Nazareth to reject Jesus. Oh, they probably thought the really spiritually minded people are down there in Jerusalem. I wish that we could go to some of those conferences and hear some of those high-powered speakers down there. And all the while, Jesus Christ is living in their neighborhood and fixing their doors and building chests for them to store their blankets in. But it's all, it's all somewhere else. It's all somewhere else. And so Jesus, Jesus leaves Nazareth. You know, there is, there's really almost no point in trying to minister to someone who hates you. It's not impossible, but it's very unlikely that you're going to be successful. Throughout my ministry of more than 40 years, there have been times when I have offended someone in the church, and I can just see that person put up a wall. I might be preaching a sermon that everybody else thinks is fire from heaven, and they are about to go to sleep. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it from me because they don't like me. I have offended them in some way. And that was the situation. I mean, they tried to kill Jesus. Obviously, his ministry is not going to be hugely successful there. And so I think that Jesus strategically and deliberately moves his family and his home from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now, he's not moving them to... He's not moving them to a place that is a a bastion of spiritual maturity. Capernaum is also in this redneck area of Galilee, and, and he goes there. And in going there, he fulfills a scripture, an Old Testament scripture that was actually about the recovering of Uh, people coming back to Israel after captivity. But here, the Holy Spirit applies it to Jesus Christ and says that the people who were living in great darkness have seen a great light. The people who were dwelling in great darkness have seen a great light. And those 
who were dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I find it interesting that uh, God so often uses sinful circumstances to accomplish His purposes. In this case, the people of Nazareth who rejected Jesus were sinning, but their sinful, vicious, violent rejection of Jesus was used to move Jesus to Capernaum, and in the process, it fulfills this prophecy that the Lord had made about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The most obvious example of how God uses sin to, uh, to accomplish His purposes is the crucifixion of Jesus. God's command is believe on Jesus. And so when people rejected Jesus and crucified Him, they were disobeying God. And yet all the while they were fulfilling God's purpose for Jesus to be crucified and to become a sacrifice for sinners. Thank God that He does use sinful circumstances in our lives to accomplish His purposes. As I was having this conversation with, uh, with Carol and Naomi on the drive down here, Naomi cited something from her past that was, that was very painful. And yet, God had used it to teach her some very important lessons. It was a situation from her past that involved someone sinning against her. And yet, God used it to teach her wisdom and to teach her maturity. We all have made, we all have made mistakes. We all have been guilty of sins that potentially could be life-ruining sins. And yet, can't many of us see how God has used those very black, dark circumstances to bring about good in our lives now? The Lord indeed is able to give us beauty for ashes. And He uses the sinfulness of Nazareth to move Jesus to Capernaum. And there, Jesus has moved to a place that desperately needs what He is bringing. It is described as people dwelling in darkness. The King James Version says that they were sitting in darkness. And some of the commentators make a point that sitting is a posture from which... uh, It is a posture that indicates that you're comfortable there. And so Jesus is going into this place where people are comfortably sitting. They're dwelling in darkness. Now... Darkness, obviously, is used metaphorically here. So what does darkness, what does darkness represent spiritually? Well, two things are very easy. First of all, when you're in the dark, you cannot see what is around you. And so darkness is a word picture for ignorance. It's ignorance of, it's ignorance of good things. It's ignorance of bad things. But darkness is a picture of ignorance. The fact that it, it, it allows ignorance of bad things, leads to a second spiritual application of darkness, and that is that darkness is often a place of fear because you don't know what's there. And, uh, and so Jesus goes to live in a place that is characterized by ignorance and by fear, and into this dark place, He brings light. He brings truth, which dispels ignorance. He brings truth. He brings, he brings uh, 
the gospel, which says that you don't have to be afraid of the things that you cannot see because God is in control of all of those things. In one of the Scripture verses that we read for, uh, for the Scripture reading, the first one in Isaiah chapter 8, essentially says, you should fear the Lord your God. And if you fear Him, you don't need to fear anything else. That's the kind of message that Jesus brought to Capernaum, and that's the kind of message that Jesus brings to us. He brings to us a light that dispels the ignorance. How are we going to figure out what God is like? How are we going to figure out what pleases God? Some of you have tried. Well, you can't do it on your own. But into our darkness of ignorance and our darkness of fear comes the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes into a land of darkness. And then the second description of this place where where Jesus moves his home to is that it's a place where people dwelt in the shadow of death. And so death also is is a spiritual metaphor. I mean, it wasn't like there was you know, a Chernobyl or some kind of radioactive thing that made it especially dangerous to live in this part of the country. It was spiritual death that was prevalent there. What does... So we saw that darkness teaches... uh, Darkness indicates ignorance and it indicates fear. What does death indicate in the spiritual realm? Well, death in the spiritual realm means that you are separated from God who is living. So God had said to uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in the day that you disobey me, you will surely die. They did not die physically that day, but they did die spiritually. There was a spiritual separation that came between them and God so that they were no longer in fellowship with Him. Their, their ideas about what was fundamentally important in life changed from what God said was fundamentally important about life. And that being the case, the Lord said, You are dead in your trespasses and in sins. This is the kind of place that Jesus went to. And this is the kind of condition that every one of us are born into by nature. We are born separated from God. We are born by nature, the children of wrath. We fundamentally disagree with God about what is important and what is life-giving. And so death represents separation from the living. Something else about death is that it, it indicates a condition that, that, that defies self-improvement. That is, you are not going to heal yourself from being dead. Dead is the worst thing that you can say about somebody. Death is worse than critically ill. Death means you are not going to get better. And the Bible uses this term to describe our condition of spiritual separation from God. We are in a condition that defies self-improvement. You can dress up a corpse. You can put makeup on a female corpse. You can, you can make him look like he's just asleep, but he's not asleep. He's dead. And all of our efforts at self-improvement are just like putting makeup on a corpse. It's like putting a fancy suit on a dead man. It might, it might look good to other people, but that, that corpse is still dead. And this is the picture that the Lord uses to describe us. So we're separated from the living God. We are not going to get better. In fact, when you're dead, you're going to get worse. You're going to progressively get worse. So that even any attempts to save yourself by your own efforts are going to make you 
progressively farther away from God. So into this, a light has dawned. Jesus coming into this this place of the shadow of death comes like the dawning of a light. It's the rising of the sun. So it's like the sun rising on a very a very dark place of mourning and hopelessness. And here comes here comes the sun. I think that there is an emphasis on the sovereignty of God in this, that the, the light dawns. It's not because all the people in this dead place have said, please send us the light. It's that God in His mercy has sent Jesus as, as the sun rises up and illumines all of the sadness and the darkness of this shadow of death. And He brings to us the life that comes from the rising of the sun and, and from being reconciled to God through Him. So we've seen so far that uh, Jesus strategically moved His home from Nazareth to Capernaum. There were good reasons for that. He had gone into the region of Galilee because John the Baptist had been put in prison. He moves from Nazareth to Capernaum because Nazareth had callously and violently rejected his teaching. In the process, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies that were made about him. And God used even sinfulness to bring that about. When Jesus came into this area, what did he do? Well, he came like light in the darkness. He came like the rising of the sun into the land of the shadow of death. And once he gets here, What does it say that he preached? So what did he preach? And he says, if you look at the last verse of my text, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent does not merely mean that you acknowledge that you're a sinner. Everybody everybody is willing to say, yeah, I've done things that are wrong. I'm a sinner. We usually follow that up with something like, but I'm not as bad as someone else. I'm I'm not as bad as I used to be. So you need to just start with admitting that you are a sinner, but don't stop there. You need to understand that it is your sin that has separated between you and God. And that should cause you to grieve over it. And so you should be sad about your sin. And because it has separated you from God and made you liable to God's wrath, then you should hate your sin and turn from your sin. And when you turn from your sin then turn your face to Jesus Christ. Turn from it unto God, fully intending to live for God for the rest of your days. And this is what Jesus says, repent. And then he follows it up with this, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think this indicates to us a couple of things. For one thing, notice the the graciousness of this message. It is not, he is not saying, the kingdom of Satan is going to finally engulf and envelop you. Instead, it's a message of hope. The kingdom of God is at hand. God has opened the gates of welcome to anyone who will repent. So it is a gracious invitation. But also, I think that you can see that not only is it gracious, it also is urgent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You should take advantage of this opportunity that you have. Now, I think that the kingdom of heaven has come now. Not as fully as it will one day come, but I think Jesus is referring to things that were going to happen in the next few years with the sending of the Holy Spirit. That the kingdom of God has come. But now that that open gate is still open. 
It's still open today so that all who will repent and come in and give themselves wholeheartedly and unreservedly to God will be saved from sin. Be saved from darkness with all of its, with all of its fear and with all of its ignorance. We'll be saved from the, the shadow of death. The separation from God will be healed. And you'll be made part of God's family and part of God's kingdom. And so the message that Jesus preached, there's nothing more important. He didn't go there to say, look, I know that we're awfully backward here in northern Galilee, and here are some civic projects that we can undertake. No, Jesus came and he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And whatever other needs you might have, there is nothing that is more urgent, nothing more serious than that you should heed this first message that Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And you may enter into the kingdom of God. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn, please.